Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for what is taking place here at Ellerslie. Thank you for SK, who's about to leave for Japan tomorrow. Thank you for all the things that are happening. And God, as we come to see you on Sunday mornings, as we come to have fellowship with others and sing songs and pray together, we ask, God, that you would turn our eyes to you and that by the presence and power of your spirit, we would see something beautiful this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Achieving a desired outcome. I think teachers are great at this. You take a history class in school and they might say something like this. The purpose of this unit, the purpose of this class is to understand the Industrial Revolution. We're going to talk about how it began. We're going to talk about the 100 years following and the impact it made worldwide. And we're going to talk about the ripple effects that we still feel today. And at the end of the class, you go, I know exactly what we learned. Or you think about construction and you look at the strip mall that's going up across the street and it might say something like opening fall 2023 and you know there's going to be a dozen bays that are there and you know they're going to have the utilities and our staff is thinking, please, a good coffee shop would be great. And you see this even personally on Friday evenings, you're thinking, well, what do I want to get out of today? Do I want to have some friends over? Do I want to watch a movie? Do I want to go out with my um, significant other on a date? And how we spend that Friday evening has that outcome of what you hope that comes out of it. And so if you're streaming a comedy movie, you might be thinking to yourself, if that's not funny, I've just wasted two hours of my life. Now, you probably know where I'm going with that. You show up on Sunday mornings, you know there's going to be some singing, and you know there's going to be teaching, and you know we're going to pray, and we're going to talk in the foyer, but you might think, well, what's the purpose of this? So a year ago at this time, we went through a sermon series on spiritual gifts, and you know, okay, at the end of the six weeks, we're going to understand spiritual gifts better. Or back in January, we went through hard questions, you know, okay, I'm going to understand a little bit more about what the Bible says about science, or, or sex, or, or the hiddenness of God. But when you look at a book of the Bible... What's the purpose? What was that written for? And if we're going to spend six or eight or ten weeks going through a sermon series, what is it that the author wants us to understand? John, perhaps more than any author in Scripture, makes it abundantly clear. This is what he says in his gospel. This is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Over the last few weeks, we've been going through the epistle of 1 John, same author, and the idea is still the same. I am writing that you might believe in God. And that by believing in God, you might understand that we have victory in his name. And you're going to hear this word of overcoming and victorious later on in the message. He wants you to understand there is something beautiful in knowing who God is and believing in what God has invited you to be a part of, the family of God. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If you're in the room, you can grab a Bible from the P-Rack in front of you. If you're watching online, thank you so much for making us part of your day. Um, you can grab a, uh, your own Bible or a phone or tablet, download the app there. 1 John is at the back of the Bible, so it's a little bit tricky to find. But if you get to Revelation and flip backwards, you'll hit the letter of 1 John. If you hit Peter or Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far. So just a reminder of what's taking place. So John is one of Jesus' 12 apostles. He's the last remaining apostle alive. He's probably right around 90 years old. And he has helped plant a number of house churches. These house churches would probably be anywhere from about a dozen to 50 people in size. And he starts this house church. He helps them get established and he moves on. And he starts another house church. But what happens is these house churches go, well, we don't know where we're going to get teaching from. And usually it's some really good teachers come in and, and tell you how to understand um, how to live as a Christian. But sometimes 
these false teachers show up. And these false teachers are saying things that are contrary to what they have heard John speak about in the past. And so now these people are a little bit confused. And so they write to John and they say, can you please tell us how we're to believe, how we're to behave, and what that's supposed to look like? And so here is John writing to them, reminding them what it means to be a follower of Jesus and why all these competing ideologies fall short of what God is calling us to do. And so here we are near the end of his book. Next week will be the wrap-up of this series. And John has this big idea that he wants us to understand. There is incredible power in our salvation. If you enjoy following along word for word, I always preach from the English Standard Version. It's a pretty intense few verses here, so I'm going to uh, read it slowly, and we'll go from there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There are certain themes that John likes to come up in his writings, both in the gospel and this first epistle. He talks about love. He talks about life. He talks about light. And so if you're ever wondering, why does Dave like alliteration so much? It's gospel truth. It's right there in front of us. Another theme that he talks about regularly is being born of God. And this theme comes up in his gospel in John chapter 3. You might be familiar with it. Jesus is talking with a leader of the Pharisees, um, a man by the name of Nicodemus. We read this in John 3. Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus looks at Jesus and says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Then Jesus goes on to unpack what that means and pretty much to summarize it, he says, God's kingdom has to be born inside of us. Throughout the New Testament, we get these different word pictures that are taking place. You're born into the kingdom of God. You are a new creation. Your life is being totally transformed. We're reminded that every day we're becoming more and more like Jesus. Um, for two years in a row now, we've done a discipleship survey. We usually do it in about March or April. And we ask a number of questions, and these questions help us to know how can we do ministry more effectively? What kind of sermon series should we be preaching on a regular basis? What kind of um, ministries can we do that would be more engaging to a broader group of people? But some of these questions are as much for you as they are for us. You might remember this one back in, from April. Over the last year, have I become more or less like Jesus? And it's almost this aspiration question. Have I been um, practicing spiritual practices like prayer and Bible reading? Or have I been slipping a little bit? Is my attitude, is my behavior, is my character more like Jesus? Or am I actually a little bit worse person to be around? Or are my neighbors glad that I live beside them? Or would they be happy if I moved away? What John is saying here is remarkable. You are born of God. You have lived a life that is totally transformed. You are a brand new creation. The power of salvation is at work in your life, changing you from the inside out so that every month, every year, every decade, you would become more and more like Jesus. And this power of salvation is so incredible that I want to spend a couple minutes walking through something called the order of salvation. 
If you went to seminary or perhaps you enjoy looking things up, you could Google order of salvation. Most people will have about six to eight steps. One of my theology textbooks had over a dozen. But I'm going to summarize that and boil it down just to four so it's easy to focus. And for the note keepers, you can have space on your paper to do so. It starts with this. It's an invitation. Somebody invited you. They shared the good news of Jesus with you. That passage from Romans is beautiful. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And if you think back as to why you're here today, somebody invited you. For many of you in this room, it may have been one of your parents. And they said, hey, we're going to go to Sunday school. We're going to go to grandma's church. We're brand new to a city. Let's make some friends by, by going to the local church. Maybe for some of you, it was your friend's. And someone said, hey, come with me. Uh, I want to invite you to something called Alpha so you can hear more about Jesus. Come to this women's event or this Christmas event that's taking place. Now, some of you might think, Dave, no one invited me to church, and that's even more amazing. Because we hear stories of people who drive by on Ellerslie Road and say, I just felt God pulling me into your building. We've watched online, now we're here in person. The Spirit himself bringing you in. The second step is you've now committed to following Jesus. You say to God, I believe in you. This is a step called regeneration. In my, uh, my previous uh, church environment, we would talk about, was it a distinct event or was it a progressive experience? Some of you can say, I know exactly when I became a Christian. It was May of 1993, and this is the person who led me. Others of you might be thinking, I, I don't know when I became a Christian. All I know is that I'm sitting here right now and I believe. And there's this beautiful thing that takes place. There is this re-spiritual renewal that happens in your life. I love how um, Paul, writing to another pastor named Titus, explains it. He says, God saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It is a beautiful word picture that God's seed lives in us. We read that in John 3, verse 9. His seed is coming and growing within us so that we might become more like him. Born of God, new creation, lives transformed by the Holy Spirit. Something else happens at the exact same time. It's called justification. God's freeing us from the penalty of sin. Now, we've got Father's Day coming up, and I'm not nearly as funny as, as Joel or David, so you'll have to bear with me a little bit. It's this bad dad joke. But it's like Jesus is looking at us and saying, when you believe in me, it's just if I'd died for you. As followers of Jesus, we believe that um, God is holy and perfect and we are not. We've fallen short in some way, shape, or form. Maybe we've said something we shouldn't have. We've done something we shouldn't have. We've acted in a certain way that does not bring glory to God. So somebody has to pay that penalty. Either we have to pay the penalty and we spend eternity apart from God. Or we believe in Jesus, just if I'd died. And Jesus dies on our behalf. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, we read this, Since we have now been justified by the blood of Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Fourth part in our kind of summary of order of salvation is the idea of sanctification. And we're turning our backs on sin and turning towards God. And sometimes we hear about kind of growing in holiness and we only talk about one of those aspects, usually the latter, where we're becoming more like Jesus. But it's twofold. 
It says I'm turning my back on sin and I'm changing the way that I live my life. I'm no longer going to be selfish. I'm going to be selfless. I'm no longer going to spend my money just on what I want. I'm going to spend my money in a way that brings God glory. And there's this change and this transformation that takes place, perhaps the most well-known of the verses there. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And when we look again at this order of salvation, we see something beautiful at play. We see this invitation. The poet Francis Thompson said, it's as though the hound of heaven pursued me. And God is inviting you into relationship with him. And when we're invited into this relationship with him, we are regenerated. We are changed. We are a brand new creation. It's beautiful. We are justified. We're no longer destined to hell. But Jesus saves us and by his mercy, his love, and his compassion rescues us and says, you can spend eternity with me in heaven. And then we are sanctified and we recognize because of the work God is doing in my life, I no longer want to live in sin but I wanna live in a way that brings him glory. And there's this beautiful power that is taking place as we recognize being part of the family of God is so much greater than what this world has to offer. I remember sitting in my office this past week thinking about this process that is happening and leaning back in my chair and going, that's amazing that God offers us this freedom. And if you look again at 1 John 5 verse one, you can see the regeneration. You can see that we are born anew. And if you look at the next two verses, you see the sanctification. This is chapter five, verses two and three. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. As you look at the two verses, whether in the Bible in front of you or the screen behind me, you'll recognize that there's a little bit of circular reasoning that's taking place here. And so John is saying, how do we show love for God's children? Pardon me, how do we show love for God? By loving his kids. How do we show love to one another? By loving God. And it's the circular reasoning that takes place, and you might look at that and go, but how exactly does that work? So I want you to sit back, maybe close your eyes if you need to, I want you to think back to your childhood. And I want you to think about an adult who played a real positive role in your childhood. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's an aunt or uncle. Maybe it's a good family friend. You have that picture? You have that person's name? You can open your eyes. I'd be willing to wager that the person who came to mind is someone who took an interest in you. They recognize that this is somebody who um, there's a sport or a hobby that we can get along. They remember what you're doing at school. They show a specific interest in your life. Maybe your parents are standing right beside you and they um, weren't talking to your parents for a moment, but they put their whole focus and attention on you. I want you to shift gears now. Most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us are parents. When another adult takes interest in your kid, how does that make you feel? makes you feel good, right? This person is showing me love by how they treat my kids. And God the Father is saying, you want to show me that you love me? Prove it by loving those around you. Prove it by caring for one another, by loving one another, by listening to one another, by carrying each other's burdens. Show you love me by loving those around you. That's the first half. The second half, John says, is really interesting. And he goes, I want 
you to show love to God by loving his kids. Pardon me, I said that backwards. Show love to God's children by loving God. You might go, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? This past week, I was talking to somebody, and he said, Dave, I've always wanted to be in full-time ministry. And I said, good news, you already are. And that's not some cute pastoral phrasing. It's something I really believe. All of you in this room, if you believe in Jesus, are in full-time ministry. And you might look at me and say, well, what's the difference, Dave, between you standing on the platform and us sitting at home or from the pews? The difference is I'm getting paid for it. I'm a full-time vocational minister, and you're the bunch of suckers who do it all for free. That's how this works. But all of us are ministers. I'll show it to you like this. You have a lot of medical professionals in the church. You're in full-time ministry by bringing God's healing, hope, and restoration to the people God places in front of you. For the government workers, you're bringing God's rule and authority to our city, to our province, to our country, by helping create laws, by impacting policies, by serving those around you. For the parents in the room, you are raising up little disciples, men and women who are going to impact the world for years to come because of your parenting skills. For the military people in the room, you are protecting our nation and keeping us safe. If you're gardening, if you're teaching, if you're an art teacher, if you're a music professor, what you are doing is helping this world become a more beautiful place and restoring it to its natural order. In all of this way, you are loving God and loving his kids at the very same time. Do you see how the power of salvation is at work in your life? So now when we arrive at verses four and five, it starts to come together a bit. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? And it's this beautiful idea that's taking place. Do you believe in Jesus? You have overcome the world. Do you believe in Jesus? You have overcome the world. Do you believe in Jesus? You have overcome the world. You get to live victorious. I need to talk about fashion for a moment. You can tell from blue jeans and a black polo, I am a fashion expert. There was a, a group of people in our population used to do something. I think they probably still do. And they would walk around in summertime and they would have the audacity to wear sandals and socks at the exact same time. And what bothered me so much about this is after a number of years, a different group of uh, our population, perhaps young adult age, started to do the very same thing. And I'm thinking, don't you look in the mirror and don't you see how ridiculous it looks to wear socks and sandals? And I would talk to Jiho, not that I'm naming anybody in particular, and I would say, Jiho, why are you doing this? And he said, Dave, you can't embarrass me, it's impossible. And then one day, I had to take the trash out, and I didn't have shoes, but I was wearing socks, and I slipped them into sandals, and it was life-changing. <laughs> and I thought, this is amazing. There's freedom. I hear that, Jiho. Amen, Jiho. Newly married, everybody. Three weeks ago, Jiho got married. Welcome to have you back, buddy. How much more? Do people look around and say, does this Bible thing actually make sense? And people keep saying that the power of salvation is incredible, and it will change your life. 
And then you hear about a couple more friends who um, start going to church as well and attending a youth group or a small group or attend a women's ministry, and they keep saying to you as well, this power of salvation, believing in God, it will change your life. And then at some point, you come to faith yourself and you recognize, here is a God who loves me so much that he pursued me and invited me into relationship with him. He loves me so much that he regenerated me. I am a brand new being. I am transformed from the inside out. It is though Jesus has died on my behalf so that I can spend eternity with him. And my life has been transformed. And you say, the power of salvation will radically change you. And John is saying, do you see what's taking place here? That if we know the God of love, if we understand and believe what Jesus has done for us, we too will be transformed and experience this incredible power of salvation. But he doesn't assume that everybody reading his letter gets it. And so the next few verses, he takes not just the power of salvation, but he says, I want to talk to you about the power of testimony. This is verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John recognizes something important that's taking place here. He realizes that in writing to all of these churches and even to us 2,000 years later, that he can tell about his own personal testimony. That's how it begins. I have seen, I have witnessed, I have heard, I have touched Jesus with my hand. And then he can talk about the false teaching of the false teachers. But what John does realize, and it's brilliant, is he understands I can't defend myself because I am not there. These false teachers are not some straw men who aren't that bright. These false teachers are brilliant orators. They have studied how to speak. They have studied how to convince people. They have studied to understand how to impact people so that they will follow them instead of what John has written. And so instead of going after them, he says, remember who God is. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, there's uh, the Israelites are on the cusp of entering the promised land. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. The Israelites have been traveling around the desert for 40 years, and they're now about to enter the promised land, and Moses is giving them a big speech. The book of Deuteronomy is three speeches by Moses, saying to them, this is what's going to happen when you enter into the promised land. Remember everything God has said. And in the midst of these three speeches, he gives this one verse in Deuteronomy 19.15 where it says this, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with the offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. And so here is John, this wise old sage. I'm not at these dozen house churches to defend myself. So I have to point them towards God so it becomes so crystal clear. I don't have a screen for the, uh, slide for this, forgive me, but for those of you who are taking notes, the water represents Jesus' baptism, the beginning his earthly ministry. The water represents Jesus' baptism, 
beginning his earthly ministry. In all of scripture, the baptism of Jesus is the most clear picture we have of the Trinity. We'll see this from Matthew's gospel in chapter three. As soon as Jesus was baptized, so there we have the, um, the son of God, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, the third person of the Trinity. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. I'm gonna dive a little bit deeper because I think this is fascinating. There are three Old Testament offices, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus comes and he fulfills all of these in perfection. He is king because he brings God's rule and authority to the world. He is the prophet because he brings God to the people. He is God in the flesh talking to the people and he's the priest because he brings the people to God. But what goes even deeper here is in Exodus chapter 29, according to Old Testament law, a priest must first be ceremonially washed with water. And here is John the Baptist, the greatest of all people at that time, not necessarily in political stature, but in moral integrity, baptizing the Son of God, ceremonially anointing him with water so that his earthly ministry would begin. Amazing. This the water represents Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his earthly ministry. The blood represents Jesus' death at the end of his earthly ministry. For those of you who might not know the story, so Jesus is walking around and he is getting thousands of people following him. So the, the Jews, the religious leaders of the time, are not happy about this. And so they create this mock trial in which Jesus is sentenced to death. Jesus is whipped 39 times, so his back looks like a meat tenderizer. He's asked to take a cross that probably weighs just as much as he does and carry it up to a hill. And then on top of that hill, he has to lie on the cross and have his hands and his feet pierced. If that's not enough, a Roman centurion takes his spear and shoves it into his side. Mark explains it like this. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this is the Son of God. John himself, the one writing his gospel in this first letter, says this. He goes, I was an eyewitness at both these events. In John chapter one, the very beginning of his gospel, he says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. I have seen and I testify. This is the Son of God. Going to the crucifixion on the other side of the screen, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, that Roman centurion, bringing a sudden flow of blood, and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies that you might also believe. Water is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. The blood is the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost. And I want you to think about something. There are moments in life where we just feel alive, aren't there? I hope that you experience them here at church on a regular basis. You sing the songs and you just think, God, you feel so close. You listen to a message and you think, oh, God, the way that was described, I love worshiping you. You might think about being with a group of friends and you're together and it's over coffee or dessert or you share a meal together and you just think, oh, I wish this night would never end. 
you're on holidays and you, you go to uh, Kelowna or you go to Portugal or you go to Italy or you go to the mountains or like me, if you're really lucky, you go to Toefield. And you look around and you say, this is incredible. Maybe not in Toefield, but everywhere else it's incredible. You're out with a sport or doing a hobby. And you just think, oh, when I'm here, I'm at home. C.S. Lewis has this great line where he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we're made for another world. And you know something greater is coming. John says it like this in his gospel, when the counselor, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. God is leading, guiding, testifying. The best is yet to come. And whether we're a part of a house churches in the Middle East 2,000 years ago or sitting right here in this room or watching from home, we recognize this is the testimony of God. And even when I might not feel like I have the faith to keep going, or I have the, the chutzpah, the, the need to keep going, you can feel and know when I remember what God has done for me, it will continue to help me keep going. The last two verses of today's passage. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So I wrap up. I'm going to invite the worship team to come join me on the platform. For the last 10 months, we've been focusing on this church-wide value of inescapable mission. We started with a sermon series on inescapable mission. You can hop on our discipleship hub and, and look about how to do evangelism, how to do hospitality. You can listen to the messages as well as you want. <clears throat> but over the last number of months, we've been talking about this regularly. Exodus, the big idea there for us, was that God is working through us. We looked at hard questions, and we're talking about science, and we're talking about suffering, and we're talking about the hiddenness of God, all of this to strengthen and encourage your faith. We looked at Luke and this journey to Jerusalem and walking with Jesus' disciples. We're looking at 1 John, which was not chosen by accident, to wrap up this whole 10-month journey on inescapable mission, that we would love people so deeply. Now you might think, oh good, we're wrapping up this whole year on inescapable mission next week. What are we gonna focus on next? More evangelism. I was talking to one of my friends uh, last year and, uh, and he goes to one of the, a larger church in town. He's not on staff there, but he attends one of the larger churches. And they've got great music, and they've got great production, and they've got a great building, and they've got great events. And, uh, and I said, so what, like, you seem to have a lot of really great things happening at your church. What do you do for discipleship? And he looked at me, he kind of half smiled, but it was, this, oh, this isn't good. He said, we don't. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, Dave, we have not had an adult baptism in two years. And so you might be sitting here going, Dave, are we going to talk about evangelism next year too? Yes. And God willing, the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, the worship team sings a song, I don't, we're not singing it right now, at least I don't think we are, called The World Needs Jesus. And here's the reality. God has placed you in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, in your families, because the world needs Jesus. And I am not there. And if you want to bring your friends here to hear Pastor Dave talk on Sunday, praise God, that is awesome. But I am not with you at your workplace. 
I'm not with you in your schools. You have different friends than me, different families than me. And through you, the Holy Spirit is working out the power of salvation saying, do you see how great this is? And there's this joy and this excitement. And we recognize God invited me into his family. God regenerated me. He placed his seed inside me so that I might look more like him. God justified me so that I might be saved and not spend eternity in hell, but eternity with God. God is continually changing me from the inside out. Heaven starts now and the world needs Jesus. And if we don't go and share the gospel with them, they will never hear it. I haven't talked about this with the staff. Heads up, staff, we're going to talk about this on Tuesday. (laughs) What does this look like this summer? And maybe we'll have a more refined idea next week, but two thoughts came to my mind. Serve one, invite one. Over the summer, we want to give our um, people who serve on uh, first impressions, kids' ministry, worship arts, a little bit of a break so that they're not coming exhausted into the fall. Would you like to serve somewhere? Even just one time, I'd like to hop behind that camera. I'd like to be a part of First Impressions and welcome all these new families who are coming in. I'd love to see what Kelsey is doing with nearly 200 kids upstairs. It'll be awesome. And will you invite one person out? If you invite them to church, great. I don't even care if you invite them to church. Will you invite your neighbor into your home? Will you invite your coworker out for coffee? And your pastor is saying this out loud. You don't even have to talk about Jesus. Love them. Ask them what they're excited about. What are you doing this summer? Ask them about their family. Ask them about what got them into the reason that they're living where they live or work where they work. Show them the love of Jesus. Because the world needs Jesus. And it's the power of salvation working through you to be the good news to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the joy that we have in serving you and worshiping you. But God, may we not be a church that's 300 Bible verses overweight. May we be a church that lives this out, that we would serve faithfully and that we would invite people into our lives and to the church to know the goodness of Jesus. Pray this in your powerful name, amen.